So let's cultivate our motivation. And remember the difference between a worldly motivation and a dharma motivation. And that difference is the presence or absence of attachment to the happiness of this life. And in particular, the presence or absence of the eight worldly concerns. So when when our mind is spinning, wanting it, wanting, taking delight in, being attached to, clinging to material possessions and money, reputation, praise and approval from others, pleasant sense situations, nice things to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think about. And when our mind is overwhelmed by the opposite of these four, in other words, really strong, not liking, not wanting, pushing away and being upset when we lose money or material things, when we fall into disrepute or people disapprove of us, criticize us, badmouth us, ruin our reputation. when we're exposed to unpleasant sense objects or unpleasant feelings that arise from these sense objects and we react with anger, then our mind is completely tied up in attachment to the happiness of this life. And in those times, it's difficult to think about future life, liberation, full awakening. Because our mind is just stuck on wanting happiness in this life, not wanting unpleasant experiences in this life. So this is something to really work on in our practice because it is the demarcation line between what is a dharma action and what is not a dharma action. So we have to learn the disadvantages of the eight worldly concerns and meditate on the disadvantages of cyclic existence and the impermanence of all these things that we 
cling to and push away. When we do that, then there's space in the mind to think about the Dharma, to generate bodhicitta, to contemplate wisdom, emptiness. So let's have a determination to deal with our eight-worldly concerns, our attachment and upset with the, these eight, and to replace them by the aspiration to attain full Buddhahood, to benefit sentient beings and help them be free from cyclic existence. And let's see sharing the Dharma this evening as one step in that direction. Okay. So, we're on chapter three, talking about the origins of dukkha. And uh, within that, talking about the six root afflictions. And within that, talking about the first one, attachment. So we talked something about attachment last week, and uh, we'll continue with where we left off this week. Okay, top of page 69. Okay, so here we are starting off with a quote from Parting from the Four Clingings, which is a teaching that um, Manjushri gave to the, gave to the great Sakya Lama, Sachankunga Ningpo. And here at the Abbey, we recite these verses when we chant uh, the longer text by this author. If you cling to this life, you are not a true spiritual practitioner. If you cling to samsara, you do not have renunciation. If you cling to your own self-interest, you have no bodhicitta. If there is grasping, you do not have the view. Very concise. Okay, very full of meaning. So the first line indicates clinging to the happiness of this life, which is invariably an obstacle for Dharma practice. Okay, so that's right now, you know, at our level, our biggest obstacle. I mean, behind the scenes, the biggest obstacle, of course, is the cognitive obscurations. And before we can get rid of those, we have to get rid of the afflictive obscurations. And uh, among the afflictive obscurations are the attachment, anger, and ignorance that are involved um, with clinging to this life 
yeah, as well as clinging to other lives within samsara. But first, we've got to deal with this life. I don't think many of us at this point in our practice are too distracted by craving for wealth in the God realm. I think we'd much rather have it this life in this realm. Yeah? Okay. (laughs) So, you know, clinging to the happiness of this life. And we can see that, you know, so many of our distractions are about this, you know, our worry, you know, will I have the wealth and the reputation and the praise and the love and the respect and the appreciation and the acknowledgement and all those things that I really want? Or, you know, is my whole life going to fall apart and, you know, nobody will like me, nobody will respect me, I'll be out on the streets in no time at all. And, you know, so the this attachment and aversion, uh, you know, are playing in not necessarily in the background, sometimes in the foreground, yeah, uh, of most of, of our life, you know. Because all day long, what we're looking for is just, you know, some kind of comfort. Mm -hmm. And so the more we're attached to those things and the more our mind spins around them, then the mind is just filled up with other stuff. So no space in the mind for the Dharma. And plus, under the influence of especially that kind of attachment and aversion, we create so much negative karma, then we have to do more purification practice, and then we, you know, get wind up in undesirable rebirths and so on. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with the happiness of this life. Okay? That's not what the text says. Okay? The text does not say, you are a bad person for clinging to the happiness of this life. You know, look in the text. It doesn't say that. So don't interpret it that way, okay? What it's saying is, look at your own life and what do you fill your time with? And is what you fill your time with something that is meaningful in the long run? Or is it something that spins you around yeah, and actually makes you quite anxious. Because, you know, when you first read the eight worldly concerns, yeah, well, you know, you're, we're thinking of the attachment and the aversion to these things. But then you look and the anxiety and the fear and the worry that lie behind not getting the four that we want and instead getting the four of the eight that we don't want. Okay, So if you wonder why you're anxious, you know, this, this is it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there could be other things that cause anxiety, but... Our self-concern about the happiness of this life is pretty strong. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. 
So the first line indicates clinging to the happiness of this life, which is invariably an obstacle for Dharma practice. The presence or absence of this type of attachment is the demarcation between an action that is Dharma and one that is not. Okay, the second line, if you cling to samsara, you do not have renunciation. And clinging uh, to cyclic existence prevents us from embarking on the path to liberation. Although it could lead to happiness within samsara, as exemplified by the person who is attached to the bliss of samadhi and is born in the form of formless realms. Okay, or we talked uh, yesterday or the day before about people who are attached to being rich in the next life. Okay, so that's considered a dharma motivation because it's not clinging just to the happiness of this life, but it's clinging to the happiness within samsara. And so when we cling to that happiness, then we don't have the aspiration to attain liberation. We have not renounced dukkha and its causes. And instead, we're, we see, okay, well, the desire realm is not so good, so let's try for a better rebirth where I have more sense, pleasure, happiness in my next life. Okay? And so that motivates many people. And they, you know, then they don't get so caught up in the happiness of this life. But again, you know, they're stuck with a motivation that keeps them trapped in samsara. So this is kind of uh, tweaking your, your samsara, but not tweaking this life. It's tweaking next life. Okay. But it still doesn't lead us to any kind of lasting uh, security or happiness that we want. Yeah, I told you how Sarkin Rinpoche, the previous one, when he went to the top of the Eiffel Tower, said, well, the only way to go from here is down. So in the same way, when you get into the very high, super-duper Beverly Hills kind of existence uh, in samsara, the only way to go is down after that. Then, clinging to our self-interest, that's the third line. If you cling to your own self-interest, you have no bodhicitta. Okay, so this prevents us from entering the bodhisattva path, although it could support the attainment of arhatship, for example, by a person who clings to be free of samsara and seeks his own liberation alone. Okay, so this is somebody who's fed up with the eight worldly concerns, fed up with samsara, yeah, and they want their uh, liberation, their intent on liberation, but they're focused on their own liberation. They're not thinking about uh, what's happening to all the other sentient beings who have been their parents in previous lives. Okay. So the most deeply ingrained attachment that clings to the self-interest of our own nirvana um, 
is the grasping uh, inherent existence which prevents the attainment of both liberation and full awakening. Okay, and of course the... um, Wait a minute, I skipped something here, didn't I? No? Yeah, so, so actually that one of clinging to the uh, self-interest, that's the effect of the self-centered mind. And then the last sentence in that paragraph is talking about the fourth line. If there is grasping, you do not have the view. So it's grasping to inherent existence that keeps us in samsara and prevents both liberation and full awakening. That's the last line in that paragraph. Okay, so encapsulated in those four lines, you have the whole path. Yeah, and it's kind of set in that order because, uh, you know, with the things that are the biggest obstacles first, because unless we deal with those things, uh, you know, really advancing to to get rid of the other impediments is going to be very, very difficult. Okay, then the last paragraph in this section, the Tibetan term chakpa may also be translated as attachment. Okay, so sometimes it means the, the clinging attachment that's based on exaggerating the good qualities of someone or something. Okay. But sometimes it's used to indicate strong affection and care. So in that context, you'll read sometimes praises to Chenrezig, uh, talking about how Chenrezig is attached to sentient beings. Yeah. So there, that attachment, what's translated as attachment is chakpa, but it's not referring to the chakpa that is one of the six root afflictions. It's, it, it indicates strong affection and care about sentient beings. So in this sense, Buddhas are attached to sentient beings, indicating that because of their strong compassion, they will never abandon sentient beings and will continuously work to lead them to temporal and ultimate happiness. This feeling of closeness and care that Buddhists have for sentient beings is very different from attachment in the minds of sentient beings, what we have towards sense objects and so on. Okay. I remember the first time I... I read like a verse talking about Chenrezig having attachment for sentient beings. And I went, what? What? What are they saying? How can they? He's, he's a Buddha. Chenrezig can't have attachment. And, you know, and then they said, well, no, it just means care and love and affection. Then I said, why don't they use that word? Why do they talk about attachment? You know, so how we react to some, to words sometimes. Okay, and it's like that word has one and only meaning. Okay, it can't have any other meanings. You know, we talk about this a lot. But you can see in this kind of situation, actually, it has a different meaning, which is a very beautiful meaning, you know, how the bodhisattvas, uh, 
you know, care so much about the plight of sentient beings that they are attached in that respect. Okay, so that's the first of the six. The second of the six, yeah, anger. So attachment, you know, when there's attachment in our mind, it makes us miserable, but it can also make us happy, happy, like when we get what we want. Okay. When, but the more we are attached to something and the happier we are when we get what we want, the more when we don't get what we want, when we get it and then we lose it, when we get it and it disappoints us, when somebody else or some circumstance interferes with us getting what we are attached to, okay, that's when anger comes up. Okay. So anger is a mental factor that referring to one of the three objects agitates the mind by being unable to bear or through wanting to harm the object or person. Okay. So the three objects can be expanded to nine. Yeah. So <laughs> so here they are. He harmed me in the past. He is harming me in the now. He will harm me in the future. Okay, so when we have that thought towards somebody, anger. Okay. And uh, the next set of three, she harmed my dear friend or relative. She is harming my harming them. She will harm them. Okay. So the first is, uh, you, all three are involved in the past, present, and the future. The first are regarding me. The second are regarding the people that I'm attached to. And then the third, he helped my enemies. He is helping my enemies now. He will help my enemies in the future. Okay, so there you have nine. The last three are against somebody who's helping the people that we can't stand. Okay, so the anger is, it's based on exaggerating the dis is disadvantages or the negative qualities of someone or something. And then it's unable to bear that. Yeah. So it's unable to, the, to bear the, that, that and agitates the mind because of that. Or it wishes to harm that object or person. Okay. Or to get away from it to somehow, you know, like, <laughs> in one way or another. Yeah. And so against one of those nine objects. Okay, so here enemy includes people we don't like or disagree with, as well as those who harm us or interfere with our happiness. So enemy here, it doesn't mean somebody that, you know, you hate forever and ever. It could be somebody, you know, that you're mad at for 10 minutes. But at those 10 minutes when you're mad, the mind is out of control. Yeah. Okay, so anger functions to disturb our minds 
It sure does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it, but it also gives us a very false sense of power. Yeah. Which is one reason I think it is very tantalizing to people. When people feel powerless, when they feel ignored, yeah, getting angry is uh, a way that you feel power and it's a way to, uh, for people to pay attention to you. Yeah, those of us who were teachers before we became nuns, you know that the kids who act out in class are very often screaming for help. Yeah, and they they need attention. They don't know how to ask for it, so it gets acted out in some kind of angry way. Yeah, and then the skill of the teacher is be, is to try and figure out what it is or to start a conversation with the child so the child opens up and, and talks about it. Yeah. I blew that one quite a bit as a new teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I have a, a certain people I want to I would like to get in touch with to apologize to, you know, so the, the guy from seventh grade. But also when I was a teacher, there was one kid who was a really nice kid, and he was a good student. And then one day he just started acting out, and he was just abominable to the point where uh, I, you know, he slammed a door in my face. Yeah, he was eight or nine years old at the time. And I had to take him to the principal for that and, you know, and everything. And then I found out afterwards his parents were getting divorced. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. If I had known that, I would not have taken him to the principal. Yeah, he was upset. He wanted help. He wanted understanding. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we have to slow down and try and figure out what what somebody is really saying, even though they may uh, be acting out in a very violent way. Yeah, one of the inmates um, wrote me about uh, one guy in his unit who has a horrible uh, record, you know. I mean, he's in for a double murder and a long, a long record, yeah. And, and yet this guy, and who sometimes flies off the handle in the unit, but he, he approached the, the guy that I write to, and and ask questions, and is showing a little bit of interest in Buddhism, you know. Not too much. He, he doubts these, these things, and, you know, he doesn't like religion, because they're, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Um, but he's asking some questions and talking, you know, discussing with Al about it. And But he, he's acting like a real tough guy, you know? So it was reminding me of um, 
two kids I had in my classroom, a third grade classroom. And one was a very big kid who often was angry and acted as a tough guy. Uh, and another kid who was a kid who didn't quite fit in, who, yeah, was very kind of fragile, okay? But Billy, the big guy, protected the other kid. Yeah? And it made me think that this guy that Al was telling me about in his unit, you know, because he was saying that that guy um, helps people who are getting picked on by bullies and cannot stand to see animals get hurt. So here's this tough guy with, you know, a soft heart. Yeah. And it reminded me so much of this dynamic between these two third graders. Yeah, very similar dynamic. Um, yeah, but somehow, you know, what they're saying is, can somebody help me? Yeah, I need help. Okay. But, of course, you know, when we don't know how to actually say what we're thinking and feeling, because we, we're, we're not in touch with what's going on, and often we aren't in touch because the environment we grew up in uh, didn't teach us how to give names to what we're feeling. Yeah, I talked to somebody once who was telling me that, you know, when it came time, she was doing graduate work, and I don't know in what field, but um, she realized, yeah, that she didn't know. She couldn't recognize when she was angry or when she was upset or whatever, because her family never used the words, you know, when you're a kid, like if your parents say, oh, looks like you're angry or, or I'm upset, and then they match behavior to, to the feeling. But some families, I guess, don't do that, and then the kids don't learn how to give uh, words to what's going on inside of them. Yeah? And it just comes out every which way. And often we have plenty of words to give to what is going on inside of us. And we analyze it to death, but we're still out of control. <laughs> okay, so it can kind of go either way. Okay, anger functions to disturb our minds as the basis for harming ourselves and others. It involves us in destructive actions and increases suffering in the world. That's for sure, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. But behind anger, there's often other emotions, like attachment, for example. Okay. And then people will say, fear lies behind anger. And that's true. But what lies behind fear? Attachment. Yeah. When you're afraid, look behind it and you know what are we attached to at that time mm -hmm. 
So anger is based is based on distorted attention that exaggerates or projects defects onto people and things. Our minds create many reasons to validate our anger and to give us a false sense of power in situations where we feel afraid or hurt. Hmm? We feel hurt, and we feel afraid, we feel like, you know, we don't have any power. So what do we do? We get angry. Then, oh, I'm going to fight back. Yeah. But we're not thinking very clearly. Anger has many forms, and several other afflictions are derived from it, including irritation, annoyance, frustration, hatred, rebelliousness, belligerence, resentment, vengeance, spite, cruelty, violence, jealousy. We have lots of English words for various types of, I put it, them all in the over, the over, um, the big classification of anger because they all have to do with exaggerating or projecting defects onto people or things and then wanting to strike back at them or, you know, just free oneself from being around them. Mm -hmm. Lots of English words. Quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, some people have told me, and I've heard His Holiness uh, talk about this, when people ask about, uh, uh, what is it, Um, righteous anger. Okay. So... Uh, here, okay, I have different theories about this. Tibetans don't ask about righteous anger. Westerners do. Yeah. So I've only heard him give this reply when he's with a Western audience. I haven't heard him talk this way with a Tibetan audience. So with a Western audience... You know, because people will push about uh, righteous anger, you know. They'll push. If he doesn't say something, they'll keep pushing. And then he'll say, okay, you know, when there's injustice or something, righteous anger can be good, yeah, And but you shouldn't be angry and want to harm the other people. Okay, so there, what he means by anger, I think, is more of a a forceful behavior. So anger is actually a mental uh, emotion. It's in the fourth aggregate. It is not a behavior. Because you can see people can be angry and behave very aggressively, they can be angry and be extremely passive. Okay? So I think when he says, uh, oh, yeah, you know, you can be angry, he's talking about, you know, being uh, forceful in giving a response. But he's not talking about 
how we define anger here, where you're exaggerating the bad qualities of someone or something and want to destroy them. Okay, Because when His Holiness talks to the Tibetans, because what do the Tibetans get mad about? You know, and if you want to talk about situations where righteous anger for Westerners would come up, well, their their country was occupied by a foreign government, and there's been genocide and uh, environmental destruction and so on there. Okay, but His Holiness says to the Tibetans, "Don't get angry at the communist Chinese." Okay, so there you have it when he speaks to his own people. He's not saying, oh yeah, righteous anger is good and, and it's it's great, and go ahead. Yeah, he's saying don't be angry at those people. Yeah, but at the same time, does his holiness just sit back and, and is he passive in accepting the situation in, in Tibet? No, he's not. Yeah. He calls out, you know, what is happening, and he he makes a moral case for it, and uh, you know, really gets allies on his on the side of the Tibetans, uh, so that people in the world know what's going on in Tibet, and will want to help the Tibetans uh, at least have autonomy. Yeah. So he used to call for independence, then now he calls for autonomy, okay, which is different. Yeah, it's more reasonable. Of course, if the communist Chinese knew what was good for them, they would negotiate with his holiness while he was still around. Because after he's not here, then there's a much greater chance of violence than when he's here. But I'm not going to talk about that right now, <laughs> okay? Um, okay, but you can see how he handles the, he says different things to different audiences. Yeah. Uh, for example, another example is when he's within a big teaching with a huge group of people uh, and he gives the five precepts. He knows that a lot of people don't want want to stop drinking, okay? So he'll quote Ling Rinpoche, who uh, apparently said when one Tibetan man came to him and wanted to take the precepts, but, you know, he <laughs> heard the fifth one, and the man said, I, I don't want to, you know, I can't give up drinking. So Ling Rinpoche said, then drink less, Okay, so when His Holiness is with a big group of people, and certainly among those, there are going to be people who say, you know, I don't want to give up drinking. Then the way he presents it is, then just drink less. Yeah, But the precept itself is not even one drop. Yeah, the Buddha said not even a drop of alcohol the size of a, of a dew drop. Okay, um, so you know, according to the audience, he'll uh, explain things in slightly different ways, so that uh, people can at least start to begin to go in the right direction. Yeah.
Okay. So, uh, where are we? Anger is based on a distorted attention that exaggerates or projects defects onto people or things. Our mind creates many reasons to validate our anger and give us a false sense of power in situations where we feel afraid or hurt. Anger has many forms, and several other afflictions are derived from it. And then we had that long list, and I'm sure you could add more to it. Okay. Behind each episode of anger are many stories, conceptualizations proliferated by our minds, in which we impute motivations to people that they do not have, interpret actions from our own standpoint, and favor our own concerns while ignoring or demeaning the concerns of others. Okay, so this is how anger is functioning. Mm -hmm. Although we may try to justify, rationalize, or deny our anger, okay, yeah, any reasonable person would be really ticked off at this situation. Yeah. Or, I've got to be angry, otherwise this person will keep on treating me this way. Or, I'm not angry. Yeah. I just want that person to stop. Okay. <laughs> so, we may... Try and cover up our anger. So, and this, there's a lot of cultural conditioning around this. Okay, for men, completely okay to display anger publicly. Yeah, for women, not okay. Yeah, you display anger publicly, you are called all sorts of names. Okay, that doesn't mean that it's good to uh, express anger publicly. You know, because do you really want to be like some of the guys who are who just tune out to everybody else and dominate and can't listen? No. Okay. But to for us to try and understand our anger and how we act when we're angry. Because sometimes when we don't act aggressively, we think, oh, I'm not angry. I don't have a problem with anger. Okay, so this was actually what was happening for me and why my teachers sent me to Italy to be Gegu of the Macho Italian monks. Okay, because I thought I didn't have a problem with anger. You know, I, I am not a yeller and screamer. Yeah, I don't throw things. So I thought, you know, okay, I get a little ticked off, but, you know, I'm not an angry person. And it wasn't until I was there and had to deal with my emotions that I realized, oh, I have a big problem with anger here. Yeah, that was, like, really shocking for me. I thought I was a nice person. But, boy, you know, 
What's going on in the mind when we're angry can be really vicious, can't it? Yeah. But we have to smile and be sweet. (laughs) Okay. So we may try and justify, rationalize, or deny our anger. The truth is that we are unhappy when our minds are overcome by anger. Yeah? And that's why you look at some of these politicians and the way they talk and the the way they demean other people and criticize and disparage people. Yeah? And they think that's showing power. Yeah? It's actually showing how unhappy they are and how egotistical they are that they think that, you know, the world should conform with what they want so that they aren't angry. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we vent our anger to friends, hoping that they will take our side. If they didn't, how could they be our friends? (laughs) So sometimes we let our anger out. on the person or persons or group or whoever it is that is interfering with what we want, okay? Sometimes we let it out on other people who aren't the actual people we're we're mad at, but people who aren't going to resist our anger, okay? So that could be, that could turn into bullying someone. It can also turn into just, you know, the story of, you know, somebody had a hard day of, at work, so they come home and, you know, hit their wife who kicks the dog, who bites the ki- somebody, you know. And so, you know, you put it on somebody else who is not going to fight back against you for one reason or another. Or another way we deal, this is with the exploding kind of anger, is we vent to a friend. So we go to our friend and we say, look what happened. This person said this, this person said that. On and on and on. And we tell the story, all the details of the story. Yeah. This person said, then I said, then they said, then I said, then they said this, then I did that, then this, and then this. And, you know, we, we want to tell the story for half an hour as if the other person is actually that interested in the whole dialogue, okay? But it, it's our way of venting, yeah? And then, uh, oh, I feel so much better. And then the other person is like, <laughs> you just threw up on me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, sometimes we need to, to vent a little bit. I think when we feel that need, we need, and we go to a friend, we need to preface it with, I am venting. Okay. So I am not giving you my problem to solve. I am not blaming you. I am not asking you to side with me. I just need to, you know, 
get this energy out of me for a while, and then please help me to calm down. Okay? So we need to say that. Otherwise, we're just venting, you know, and it can be pretty unpleasant for the other person. <laughs> okay, other times we speak or act in ways that harm others. Here we can see the relationship of attachment and anger. The more distorted attention has exaggerated someone's good qualities, increasing the strength of our attachment, the more distorted attention exaggerates that person's bad qualities when he or she doesn't meet our expectations. Okay? So this is the thing. Who are the people that we treat the worst in the world, that we say the most awful, horrible things to? Strangers or the people we, we're close to who we care about? We would never say to a stranger what we say to the people we care about the most. Yeah, to the people we're attached to. Okay? Because we have expectations that they must have agreed to, even though we never asked them. Yeah. And then when they don't meet our expectations, then we feel justified in letting them know in no uncertain, unclear terms that they are in the wrong. And the situation, the, the way to correct the situation is very simple. I am right. You are wrong. You change. Yeah. Very simple. That's how we should resolve all our conflicts, right? I'm right, you're wrong, you change. Very easy. Yeah. Problem is, the other person thinks the same thing about us. But that's because they're wrong. Okay. So we become discontent, and this mental unhappiness inflames our anger, resulting in aggressive behavior that breaks the trust of the people we care about the most. And when we break the trust of the people we care about the most, it's really hard to reestablish it. It takes a long, very short time to break trust, very long time to regenerate it. So anger is a mental state. It is not the behavior. While some of us may not think of us as angry because we don't throw things or scream at others, Inside, our anger rages. In these cases, ignoring the other person or refusing to have anything to do with them may be considered harmful behavior. Okay? So we don't tell somebody out if we don't throw something at them. Yeah. But how do we let them know? You know, we turn into not an ice cube, an ice wall. Okay. I am not talking to you. Okay. 
Yeah, so the imploders. We have the exploders and the imploders. And then the people who do both, depending on the situation. So we should not be fooled into thinking that passive behavior, like withdrawing from a situation and refusing to communicate, indicates a lack of anger. Okay? So we don't need to push somebody away in an aggressive way. We just ignore them. They don't exist. We don't talk to them. We withdraw completely. Okay? And for people who are socialized, you know, that you should not express anger, this is, you know, the behavior that comes out of it. Okay? So we have to see anger does not necessarily mean aggressive behavior. Okay? And it doesn't necessarily mean passive behavior. It could be either one of them. Similarly, uh, being having a calm mind in the, in the face of adversity doesn't mean that you're passive in the face of adversity. Yeah. You can act in a very forceful way to get your point across, but behind it, there's no anger. So I think that's when His Holiness talks about righteous anger. He's talking about that, when you may have to act in a very forceful way, yeah, to stop harm or to get a point across to somebody who's not listening. But you're not angry. Okay? So I think this is something that that parents, uh, you know, deal with a lot. Now, granted, some parents are angry, furious when they discipline their kids. But some parents, they know that, you know, if their kid runs out into the middle of the street, not looking both ways, but they're chasing a ball, you know, they know if they just say, oh, sweetheart, don't run out in the middle of the street. The kid is not going to listen. Yeah, they have to pick the kid up and say, don't run out in the middle of the street. You know, it's dangerous. You can get hit by a car. And then the kid goes, oh, okay, you know, this is something I need to listen to. Okay, But the parent doesn't have to be angry to say that. Yeah. And I think how parents discipline kids is different in different cultures. Yeah, I was at one family's house, a Chinese family's house, and the father was disciplining the child. The child was young, maybe five, four, five, six, around that age. And the father was like really speaking loudly to the child. Yeah, I could hear because I was in a different room. And then the child came wandering in to the room where I was, and the father came after him, picked him up, and hugged him. Yeah? So it's like, no, you know, I've got to scream at you to get this point across, but I still love you. Yeah. In other homes, yeah, if you got screamed at, <laughs> forget getting hugged or picked up. Yeah? It, that's not going to happen because, you know, of the culture of the family or 
maybe the culture of that particular group. I don't know. Yeah. But there's different ways. I was very impressed with this father, you know, who picked their child up after, you know, disciplining him. Anger may also be a reaction to fear. When fearful, we usually feel powerless, whereas anger gives us a false sense of power by sending adrenaline coursing through our body. Although anger may sometimes seem to make us courageous, our behavior when anger seldom remedies the problem and usually makes it worse. And so here the the thing is, to really, you know, look at our own life. And when we've gotten really angry and, you know, exploded or imploded, refusing to communicate or venting our anger on somebody, what were the results? Yeah. Did the other person say, oh, yes, come, come, let's have a cup of tea and talk, and talk about what's wrong? Yeah. No, they screamed back or they threw something back, or they stomped out of the room and didn't talk to us. Yeah. So anger is is not conducive for good communication. But when we're angry, yeah, we think we're trying to communicate, but we're not actually. Because communication doesn't just mean expressing ourselves. Communication means thinking about how to express what we're thinking or feeling in a way that the other person can understand. Yeah? And if we use, you know, words or behavior or volumes of voice, you know, that are going to indicate one thing when we're trying to communicate another, then that's not going to work. But some people think anger is like really good. You know, when I was at, I think it was the University of Michigan. And some, this was many years ago. I was asked to, to speak uh, to the people in the, they were in the mediation conflict resolution department. And so I was talking about anger, and those people got really mad at me when, when I said, you know, anger is, is not conducive for happiness or for solving problems. And they said, but anger is good. When you're angry, you know something is wrong. I said, yeah, you know something's wrong, but aren't there other emotions that let you know something is wrong? Well, anger lets you know you have to do something about what is wrong. Yes, but you usually don't do a very good job. How about compassion as a motivating force? Hmm? Compassion, you know, you can express yourself very well, but without the danger that that anger brings to the situation. So uh, another story about His Holiness. Uh, 
Oh, and this fits in with the things about righteous anger, yeah? So he was getting interviewed. I think it was somebody from the L.A. Times or some some newspaper. And they said, you know, uh, Your Holiness, uh, your country's been invaded and you've been a refugee for X number of years. How come you're not angry? Okay. So ask that question to almost any other person, world leader, whatever, and, you know, boy, okay, now I have a hook. I can grab onto that and really let out and blame whoever it is that is disturbing my country, my people, myself, whatever. You know, the, the, they asked, so now I, I have a reason to answer and just let it out and criticize. And His Holiness said, if I were angry, what good would it do? Okay, so you see here, he's not talking about, he's not saying outrageous, self-righteous anger is good and you should be angry to combat things. He's saying, if I got angry, what good would it do? <laughs> then he said, if I were angry, I wouldn't sleep well. I wouldn't eat well. I'd be really unhappy. Yeah. And the interviewer was looking at him like, who is this guy answering a question like in that way? You know, because she expected, she was giving him the lead in, you know, and he didn't want to, he didn't bite the hook. Yeah. No, I couldn't sleep well. I can't eat well. What use is getting angry? <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's stop here for a minute, see if there's any questions. Sometimes different books use different words in English to refer to the same concept. Yeah. And so just to check animosity, aversion, do those mean the same thing as anger or are those sometimes referring to something different within a Buddhist context? It depends. In some context, you know, people use aversion, but I don't think aversion equals anger because you can be adverse to something without being angry at it. But some people use aversion to indicate anger. Yeah, but I personally don't. Yeah. Animosity, I'll sometimes use that instead of anger, you know, or hostility, I'll use. Um, yeah. Some people will say, well, anger tends to be more an explosive thing that is temporary and you get over it sooner where something like hatred lasts longer and it's much deeper antipathy towards somebody. So that's, you know, our English definitions. I put them all under the, the big umbrella of anger, um, even though, yeah, in English you can say, yeah, anger. You, you get angry at, at somebody you care about, but, you know, you're over it soon. But hatred is like, really, yeah.
When attachment to good rebirth motivates keeping ethical conduct, do we say that this attachment is virtuous or non-virtuous? And can attachment be neutral? Okay, so remember last week, if you were listening last week and the week before, we talked about this, okay? That when uh, here attachment is referring to clinging to something in the happiness of this life, yeah? It's not referring it to, you know, when we talk about the eight worldly concerns and the attachment that is non-virtuous, then we're talking about the attachment to things in this life. If somebody is attached to, you know, they want to be born in the former formless realm uh, because it's very blissful or equanimous there, very peaceful, okay, they have a kind of attachment to something in samsara, but that attachment is not non-virtuous, okay, because it's not clinging to something in this life. And so that is considered a dharma motivation, although there is attachment to the happiness in samsara. So that attachment is something that needs to be abandoned to attain liberation or awakening, but it's not non-virtuous. Okay? Yeah. Even animals have a sense of fairness, but is that anger? A sense of fairness doesn't mean that you have to be angry. Yeah? I mean, two, two dogs and there's one biscuit, you know. Um, I don't think that they imagine, uh, what, what's it called, you know, the lady, lady, liber lady justice. Yeah, they, I don't think they imagine lady justice and cutting the dog biscuit in half. You know, they're attached to that dog biscuit and they want the whole thing. And so they growl at the other dog who wants it. When anger is a mental state, it is not the behavior. It is not behavior, Can Ben yeah. will explain a bit more, like how seed of anger continues from one life to another. Okay, the seed of anger is, okay, there's manifest anger when anger is in our mind and we are angry, okay? From between, but we aren't always angry. Okay. So between one episode of anger and another episode of anger, okay, there's the seed of anger that, that connects them. Okay. So you're angry, then your anger goes down. It isn't like you have no anger in your mental continuum at all. The seed of anger is there. The, the anger is not manifest, but the potential for anger to manifest in the future is still there. And so that seed of anger also can go from one life to the next life. Mm -hmm. There seem to be many other objects of anger, such as ourselves or situations, events. Do these fit into the divisions of objects? Ah, uh, yeah, in one way or another. I mean, when we get mad at ourselves, we're exaggerating our own negative qualities, aren't we? Yeah. Um, we, um, we may get angry at uh, 
I'm, I'm thinking, I'm kind of thinking out loud here. You know, you're in a meeting, somebody said an idea that you don't like, and instantly, you know, you get really angry and you have to jump in and say something and criticize that idea lest anybody else like that idea, you know. So that, that you know, what does it fit into? It probably goes somewhere, if you're talking about the eight worldly concerns, somewhere about attachment to approval, attachment to... Um, praise and reputation. Yeah. So we want our ideas to be right so that people will like us and think well of us. Something like that. Yeah. When, when uh, I did the nine objects, okay, no, not, not all anger fits into the nine objects because those nine objects were all people. And sometimes we, uh, you know, get a get angry at situations, not or or uh, physical, you know, inanimate objects, not people. Next, <laughs> anger always has, there's a lot of questions. Yeah, don't you think that anger might be part of the process of healing, like when someone kills a loved one, or in case of abuse, or something like that? in which repressing what you feel is worse. Okay. Now, if somebody kills a loved one, do you have to feel angry? Is anger the only emotion somebody can feel so that if you don't feel it, you're, you're repressing it? Yeah, this is what I question. I think sometimes... People may feel sadness or grief, you know, a sense of loss more than they feel anger. Yeah. So I think, you know, in these kinds of situations, there could be a wide diversity of emotions. And, you know, we don't want to repress our emotions. So we're not saying you shouldn't feel that way. We're just saying with some emotions, when you feel that way, does it, uh, you know, is that something that you want to continue feeling? Okay. About this, the thing, when somebody kills a loved one, okay? So um, we had somebody who was a federal uh, defender, a federal, yeah, um, public defender, a, pub, a federal public defender. And she was defending one of the guys that I wrote to. And uh, she was trying to get the governor to give clemency or, you know, something like that. So she came out here and she wanted to interview and so I could talk about him because he was completely different than the per the person I knew that he had become was very different than uh, the way he was being described. And she actually had doubt whether he was the one who committed the crime. And she went into great detail expressing, telling me why she told me the whole story. But in any case, you know, I asked her about this. 
you know, about, um, yeah, people being angry. Uh, and, uh, you know, often when there's a, uh, they're enacting the death penalty, people are outside the prison. You know, there's usually some people protesting, but other people rejoicing. Oh, they killed them. Now justice has been had. Okay. From what her, what she told me, and she has been, she had been to many, many executions, okay, defending people who, you know, was so far gone in the legal process that they there was no respite for them. But she told me that what happens is when they find somebody who they think did it, or they set somebody up, or they make somebody give a false, um, what's it called? Test, you know, um, no, admission, you know, a false admission of guilt. Uh, that then they tell the family, yeah, you should be angry, you know, they, or, or they don't say you should be angry, but they say, you know, we know you're angry. They encourage the family to be angry because if the family is angry, then the prosecutor can, you know, when prosecuting the case, make the person look worse than they are, you know, because the prosecutor is trying to get a conviction, okay? So anybody who's angry, oh, they did this and they did this and I can't stand them and they took my head. Then the prosecutor goes, yeah, look, you know, how awful what this person did was. So the prosecutor likes when the family is angry and encourages that because then also when the family talks to the press, they're very upset, they're angry, you know, they talk that way in the press. And for, you know, if, if you're a DA and you're getting elected, you like that kind of press because it shows you're tough on crime. Okay. And then she told me that as soon as that person is, they're given a death sentence, as soon as they're convicted, um, as soon as they're executed, the prosecutor just drops them. They're no longer useful to the prosecutor. And so they were encouraging that person to be angry, even if they weren't. Yeah, because it serves their purposes, you know? And so she was saying in some ways, you know, when that happens, it actually disrupts the healing. Yeah, because you pump them up full of anger at the person who was killed. Somebody else gets killed and then you're supposed to feel relief. But what many people feel is like, oh, they got killed and I was instrumental in getting somebody else killed. It was a legal murder. The government did it. But does that solve my grief? No. Okay. So, you know, 
I don't think in all situations where somebody's been harmed that anger is always a necessary step to healing. People are very, very different. Yeah? They're very different, and they may handle things in a very different way. So I don't want to pre-program people and tell them what they should feel. Because I was also one time at a lecture. Um, Stephen Levine was talking in Seattle when I lived there. I don't know if any of you went. Anyway, one young man got up to ask a question at the mic, and he was like, you know, he, he was, you could tell he was trying to look angry. And he was saying, my therapist tells me I need to be angry because this happened to me. But you could see that he was trying to look angry, you know, maybe to please his therapist or something. Um, yeah, it was, it was sad to see that because it wasn't what was really going on inside of him. So I'm not saying don't be angry, and I'm not saying anger is bad. I'm just saying let's not tell everybody how they should feel. You consider anger against white supremacy or Nazis righteous anger? I don't believe in righteous anger. Yeah? I consider that anger. I consider, you know, Nazism and white supremacy as disgusting uh, ideas, but I don't want to hate the people who hold those ideas. Yeah. I don't agree with those ideas. But you see, you can oppose ideas without hating and, and denigrating the people who hold those ideas. People are not their ideas. Um, anything else? No? Now your turn. <laughs> I think just the last thing that you said, Venerable, is that one of the ways in which I've been trying to deal with my anger over the years is to is to under, is to get over this misconception that I've been so afraid of my anger because I thought that it has so much around my identity that I really believe that that was part of who I was, that this misconception that anger is an inherently existent part of my own, my being. Mm -hmm. And then also, too, as I, I've started to see that I have, maybe it's just the way I was raised, a conditioning, is that there are particular situations, there are pic particular tones of voices, there's particular types of personalities. Mm -hmm. There are some things that I rarely get angry about that upset other people. So to be able to identify where these little sensitive places where I can almost, okay, this is the place where you kind of go off because there's <laughs> something here that you have misperceived. So I've been able to identify these places. And so I see that it's just the thinking. The thinking starts immediately. As soon as I hear that tone of voice or it's a topic, mm -hmm. there's a conditioned response that and the anger comes up. Yeah. So as I'm able to do do a little bit more anticipation of things mm -hmm. like that, I've been able to somehow mitigate the kind of, you know, the tightness that I get into and the reactivity that I get into. Yeah. But to see the conditioning, and that is a habit of mind. 
Yeah. It's not me. It's this habit that I have very inculcated yeah. in my being, you know, my personality, yeah. my thinking. Yeah. It's very much a habit. You know, we, we're almost like push button, you know? Somebody says X, it's like pushing a button, I get angry. Yeah? And it's like, yeah, just automatic response. So much conditioning, so much habit that, you know, that sometimes if we stop afterwards and go, why am I angry? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could Venerable explain a bit of wrathful compassion for the Buddhas? Okay. So there, there, we will see, you know, some of the Buddhas looking quite wrathful. You know, Vajrapani, Yamantaka, Makala, you know, Hayagriva. Yeah, they look wrathful. What they're doing is what are they wrathful towards? The afflictions. They're not wrathful towards living beings. Okay. Why not? Because every living being has the potential to become a fully awakened person. So you can't sign anybody off and say that they're worthless and they deserve to be destroyed. Okay. Because anyway, you can't destroy a mind stream. They're just going to get reborn. <laughs> yeah. And eventually the continuity of that mind stream will become a Buddha. So we, you know, in Buddhism, you don't get angry at the people. You get angry at the ideas. Okay. You get angry at the behavior. Not angry, but you know, you, you, you are able to say, you know, this behavior is wrong. These ideas are harmful. Yeah. But without criticizing the person who, who does the behavior or holds that idea. Does that answer the question? Do you want to say the question again? We'll explain a bit on wrathful compassion of the Buddhas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So th this is what the wrathful Buddhas are showing. Yeah. The, that you're wrathful towards, towards a wrong view. You're wrathful towards attachment. You're wrathful towards belligerence. Yeah. Because those thing are things that harm sentient beings. So they're not wrathful towards other sentient beings. What's interesting is when you meditate on them, yeah, these wrathful deities, it brings up your anger, and you have to really look at your anger. And then you begin to see your conditioning around your anger and the energy behind the anger and you know, and then you start applying the antidotes and figure out how to work with that energy and how to work with those kind of thoughts. Mm, usually when I think about, say, personal distress in my own experience, I think of it as linked to maybe attachment. And so I'm grieving the situation because I had expectations or that, uh, or I link it with arrogance, like I've exaggerated my importance and what I can do in the situation. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that it comes, um, that personal distress also leads to anger. <laughs> As in, mm -hmm. it's taken me a long time to catch. And I think I confuse that with righteous anger. 
in mm-hmm. some ways. So I wonder if you could say more like, what am I exaggerating? Am I exaggerating the magnitude of the suffering? Or uh, well, give me some examples. So like when what? the pandemic hit last year, I was so mad. Okay. Like for like, why isn't the government doing more? And and then I come back and read um, Open Hearted Life, and it's like. Yeah, not knowing what to do to relieve suffering, we become distressed, we become angry at the situation. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm in personal distress. Yeah. But it feels so like right to be upset. Yeah. Well, that that's <laughs> Yeah. It feels right because when you face the pandemic, what can we do? The most we can do is to try and keep ourselves and the people around us safe. The most we can do is to good, give good advice to other people, okay, and vote for the people who will deal with the pandemic properly. But can any of us go out and like make the pandemic stop? We're powerless. So lots of times when we feel powerless towards something that is, is deeply, you know, distressing to us, then we get angry because it gives us that sense of power. Because, you know, if somebody says, well, what are you angry at? Well, I'm not angry at the virus. Yeah. Yeah. But it is the virus that's actually causing the damage. Yeah. But I'm not angry at the virus. I'm angry at the government. Okay, what is the government? Who exactly are you angry with? Yeah. Well, does that one person control everything in the government? Yeah. No, they influence a lot, but even they can't control everything. Okay. So the whole thing, if we we want to feel like there's something I can do, you know, that I can do to stop this. Whereas, you know, we can't control the whole thing, can we? Yeah, we would like to. Yeah, and we'd like to get up there and say, okay, everybody, you know, stay home, wear a mask, social distance, don't you go outside. And then what is everybody going to (laughs) say? You know, maybe in Singapore, you know, 90% of the people would do it. Yeah. Hear you say that? (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. Okay. But, But even if you say it in a different tone of voice, and you explain things, and you give reasons, and, and everything like that, still, we can't control the whole thing. Yeah. So... And this is part of samsara, isn't it? That we lack control. Yeah, Yeah, it's always good to hate the government because nobody knows what the government is, but everybody hates it. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, but when you ask, what exactly is the government? Yeah, what what exactly is it? Is it one person? Is it a group of people? Is it a group of rules about how things are done? Is the constitution the government? Yeah. 
is the House of Representatives the government? Is the president the government? Is the, you know, department of who knows what, you know, public roads, is that the government? Is everything about the government bad? Yeah. But it's easy, you know, because nobody knows what it is, and so everybody can criticize it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Americans. We love to criticize, don't we? Yeah? We love to criticize the government. We love to, to make, um, to, to say, you know, satire. Yeah. The satire, like the, the late night shows and, and Saturday Night Live and these things. We love the satires on the government. Yeah. This is part of American culture. But, yeah. <laughs> It, it relieves some some upset, but you know, what is it? In New Zealand, are people mad? Or, or Australia, are they mad at the government like here? Or do they like to satirize the government? A lot of sat a lot of satire as well. A lot of satire, yeah. huh? Okay, but and a lot of I think more crass though than here, at least in Australia, it's a bit more. Crass humor as well. Here. Uh, then in Australia, more in Australia, crass. More um, crass humor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's um, stop here. And next week, arrogance. So between now and then, you can get yourself all puffed up.